The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, if you are a guest, welcome. We're glad that you're with us. And uh, My name is Penny, and I'm the senior pastor here. And uh, It is good to be with you. If you are visiting, uh, I'd love to be able to greet you after the service. If you're uh, able to stick around for a few minutes, it'd be nice to meet you. Uh, but we are glad uh, for us to be together and to come to God's Word. And the portion of His Word we're looking at this morning is Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you, and we'll be projecting the passage in just a moment. Um, But for the last number of weeks, we've been in the book of Romans, and we began Romans 1 by hearing from the Apostle Paul about God's righteousness, right? That's what the first 17 verses of chapter 1 we're dealing with, God's righteousness and the power of salvation that is revealed in the gospel, That's how he began this wonderful letter to us, by talking about who God is and what he's doing, how he's at work. And then from there, verse 18 of chapter 1, going all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul has this long section where he tells us not only of the gospel, that's what he shared with us in the very beginning, but our need for the gospel. So he tells us about God's righteousness, he tells us about the power to save, he tells us about the good news, and then he tells us why this is good news. He spends a few chapters telling us about the bad news of ourselves, of our sin, of why we are in need of the power of the gospel. And this morning, we're finishing up that long section. We're going to be looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, and in it, we're going to see why it is that we need the gospel because we're going to see our own sin. So let's read chapter 3, verse 1. Then, when it, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true through everyone Though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law 
so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that uh, you have not uh, you have not kept yourself hidden from us, but that you have revealed, us, revealed yourself to us in your word. And that the knowledge of who you are and of who we are is revealed in what you have given us. And so we pray that as we come to this word now, that you would help us to see clearly. Help us to see ourselves and help us to see you so that we'd be driven towards you and cling to your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the world of Harry Potter is a uh, very magical world. It's a magical world, a world of make-believe of wizards and witches. There's mythical beasts, fantastical characters, and, and magical objects. If you've read or uh, read the books or watched the movies, you know this. And one of the magical objects that uh, features in one of the earlier books, in one of the earlier stories, is the Mirror of Erised. Now, the mirror of Erised isn't just any old kind of mirror. It's not a mirror that you look at to make sure your hair is just right or that your clothes are nice or you have something stuck in your teeth. It's not that kind of a mirror. That's not why you're looking at it. Now, the mirror of Erised, when you look at it, it actually reveals something much deeper to you. It reflects not just your outward appearance, but it reflects your deepest, most desirous longings of your heart. So Harry discovers the mirror of Erised and he uh, brings his friend Ron to come look at it and when Ron looks in the mirror what he sees is this uh, older Ron and he's wearing a badge that says head boy. He's the top student, the top male student at Hogwarts. It says head boy and he's dressed in Quidditch robes, the uh, sport of the magical world. And he's holding a Quidditch trophy because he captained his team to victory. You see what Ron sees when he looks into the mirror isn't himself, but he sees that he is no longer under the long shadow of his family, and he's no longer hidden in the shadow of his more famous friend. What he sees is his own glory. That's what he's longed for. Well, Harry, when he looks into the mirror, he doesn't see his own glory. What he instead sees are two people staring back at him, a man and a woman. And they're looking at him full of pride and joy, full of love and affection. These are his parents. If you know the story, you know that Harry lost his parents when he was a child and never had a family of his own, never had people who loved him. And so he longed for family. That was the desire of his heart. And so he saw that in the mirror. Now, of course, this is a um, magical mirror and is fantastical. But I wonder if we had such a mirror in front of us, what we would see what we would long for, what we would desire. But I wonder if we had a mirror that didn't just show us the desires of our hearts, the longings of our spirits, but, but actually if the mirror showed us something else about our hearts, not just our longings and desires, but actually the, the darkness of our hearts, what would we see? Well, Paul is telling us that the law of God functions like that kind of a mirror. 
It functions like that kind of a mirror. You see, instead of looking into the mirror that is the law of God and it revealing all of our heart's longings, it actually reveals the darkness of our hearts. Look at verse 20. Paul says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So we heard it, right? Through the law comes knowledge of sin. When we look at the law, Paul is telling us it reflects back to us our sin. And what we see when we look at this mirror that is the law is the depth of our sin. We see the depth of our sin beginning in verse 10. Paul, quoting from the Old Testament, says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So Paul, in quoting from the Old Testament, is describing to us the state of man. That when we look into the mirror, what do we see? Well, we see our own flesh. Our humanity, our experience. And so I want us to think about our experience. I want us to think about our human experience in relation to what Paul describes here. And what we see is how broad, how, how deep sin affects us. Look, it affects our minds, verse 11. No one understands. It affects our desires, verse 11. No one seeks God. It affects our ethic, what we do with our hands and our feet. Verse 12, no one does good. It affects our words. Verses 13 through 14, tongues that deceive, venom of asps, mouth full of curses and bitterness. It, reflects our, it affects our relationship with one another. Verses 15 and 17, swift to, shed pe- swift to shed blood, the way of peace is not known. And ultimately, it affects our relationship with God. Verse 11 and 18, no one seeks God, there is no fear of God. So what aspect of human experience is not met here, is not addressed, right? Our minds, our desires, our ethic, our words, our relationships, every aspect of our human experience has been affected by sin. Every aspect. There is not a single part of our existence that isn't included in what Paul has listed here. It's what we call total depravity. Now, when we say total depravity, we're not meaning, as some would maybe think, that we're as bad as we could be, right? In in fact, we could be much, much worse than we often are, and in fact, we're actually much worse than people even realize we are. But it's not talking total depravity. It doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be. Total depravity simply means that every aspect of us has been affected by sin. Our minds, our tongues, our hearts, our wills, our actions, every aspect of us in our totality feels the weight of sin and is oriented away from God. You see, when we look into the mirror that is the law, what we see is not a person who has kept the law, but one who has broken it. That's why Paul says in verse 19 that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. 
Okay, so think about the argument that Paul's been making for the last couple of chapters, for the last number of verses that, that he's been building. Paul talked to the irreligious people of the day, right, to the pagans, to those outside of the religious community, and he, he talked about their sinful behavior. And he lists out 23 vices at the end of chapter 1. And then he talks about the religious people, right? The religious people who are about to condemn the irreligious people, but then they go and do the very things that they're condemning. So he talks to the irreligious, he talks to the religious. He, he talks to those who are speaking, who are looking to their traditions and piety to find their justification. And he sums it all up with this statement that every mouth would be stopped. So do you see the image he's giving us, he's creating for us? I mean, think, think about the sin that we see in another. The sin that makes our stomachs feel queasy, makes our stomachs turn. And we open our mouths to speak and we're ready to condemn that sin and we're ready to justify ourselves as we condemn that sin. But, but before we can utter a word, the mirror of the law is put before us. And before a justifying word can be spoken, we see our own sin. That's the image Paul's giving us, right? It's like that meme that goes around of the guy who's ready to talk and then he... Oh, oh yeah, me, me too. That's what we're seeing here. That's what we're seeing in Paul, what he's describing. Every mouth is stopped. Every mouth is stopped because we see the depths of our sin. And every mouth is stopped because of the breadth of sin. It's not just my mouth that's stopped, it's all of ours. None of us can justify ourselves. The breadth of sin is that we have all fallen short. Look at verses 9 through 10. What then? Excuse me. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. So do you hear that? The Jew and the Greek, this is Paul speaking universally. Right? It's summing up everyone in the world. There were Jewish people and non-Jewish people. And you're either one of them. And whether you're one of the Jews or you're one of the non-Jews, the fact is, is that you have fallen short. Everyone is under sin. The young and the old, male and female, African and European, Hispanic, black and white, those who grew up in the church and those who maybe this is their first time being in church. We are all under sin. And just to make sure that there's no uh, question about it, that there's no wiggle room, Paul says, none is righteous, no, not one. Now, we don't have to think about those people who are included in the None, no one, not one, right? I mean, it's pretty easy to think of those people. Those people that uh, exemplify unrighteousness to us, right? Maybe it's our neighbor. You know, maybe it's it's our coworker who, you know, kind of sometimes seems to fudge the numbers a little bit. Maybe it's our classmate. Maybe it's our family member who's been doing those things that we don't like. It's not hard for us to think of all those people who are included in the none is righteous, It's not very hard because we should also include ourselves. Because it's not just them, but it's us. It's me. It's you who are part of the none. 
the no one is righteous is us. You see, the breadth of sin means that every single person who has ever lived at every point in time in every nation and town and city, including Roanoke, Virginia, in 2022, comes under sin. That is the breadth of it. That's what we see in the mirror. We see the breadth of our sin. We see the depth of our sin. And so, so we have to ask, so what do we do about this? Like, what is to be done? How do we deal with the depth and the breadth of sin? Well, Paul, either foreseeing the questions that might be brought up to him, or maybe he had heard of them. We know he heard of at least some of it secondhand. Um, foreseeing what might be brought up or, or hearing about him, he, he's going to address some of the ways in which people are trying to deal with their sin that they're trying to deal with their human condition. And we see this in verses 1 through 8. We see it first by, by those who say, well, you know what, if, if, if as Jewish people our Judaism didn't save us, then maybe we just need to be done with it. Religious practice, let's just put it aside. You see it in verse 1? If circumcision, Jewish rituals, if those things won't save us, maybe religious practice doesn't matter. Right? We'll just boot it away. We'll just get rid of it. And that will solve our condition. Now, we've heard this before. Maybe it was in terms of um, circumcision or Judaism or something like that. But, but we hear it more in a modern way of like, well, I, I don't need religion. It's just me and God. Right? Like, it's just me and Jesus. I, I like Jesus. This is kind of like, I like Jesus, but I don't like his people, so I don't want to be with his people. Right? And, and as his people, we can kind of understand where that might be coming from, right? <laughs> But that's what it is. It's basically a saying like, like this hasn't gotten us anywhere. Religious practices, right? Formal religion. None of this has saved us. It hasn't redeemed us from our sin. And so let's just be done with it. But what does Paul say? No, that's not the right response. The practices and traditions have been beneficial because the Jews were given the promises of God. We're in our context, it's in the gathering of God's people that we hear the word, that we receive the sacrament, that we gather together. This is what God has given to us, not for us to put aside, but to embrace. No, religious practice isn't going to solve the problem of our condition. So if it's not religious practice, maybe God's the problem. That's the next thing that we see. Maybe Maybe God is the problem because he hasn't been faithful. Look at verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? So you hear it, right? Like, God has made promises to his people. His people have messed up. His people have sinned. His people have turned from him. So therefore, the problem is God's faithfulness. And what does Paul say? Of course not. The problem isn't God's promises or faithfulness. That's not what brings about our sin. The problem is our faithlessness. You see, God's goodness isn't determined by our obedience or the lack thereof. God is faithful even in the midst of our sinful faithlessness. We can't blame God for this. That's not going to deal with our condition. So we don't, we can't blame God. We can't throw away religious practice, so, so maybe just simply God isn't just. We see it in verse 5. If our unrighteousness shows the righteousness of God, then he shouldn't punish us. Do you hear that logic? 
My unrighteousness is just contributing to see the righteousness of God, so how can he find fault with me, basically? But what does Paul say? Well, if God can't inflict wrath, then he isn't the true judge. And we've already established that he is. So then we come to the final response. Paul sees it from these people. He hears it. If by lying, God's truth is shown. If by evil, good is revealed. If in contrast to sin, God's righteousness is shown, then let's just keep on sinning. Let's just keep on sinning. Because then grace will abound. Right? And, and let's not just sin a little, but let's sin boldly because then grace will come boldly. Right? Like, that's what they're saying. And in fact, that's not just what they're saying. They're actually charging Paul with saying this. Did you see it in verse 8? As some people slanderously charge us with saying. So what they, what's going on is Paul has been proclaiming a message of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And they're saying, well, Paul, then clearly all you want people to do is keep on sinning so that they're, that grace can keep coming. And what does Paul say? It's slanderous. And you're condemning yourself by saying it. Later in chapter 6, he takes up this question very explicitly when he asks the rhetorical question, are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? And the answer is, by no means. No. To continue to sin under the guise that grace will increase is actually to bring condemnation to ourselves and it is a misappropriation of grace. Grace shouldn't lead to greater license, to greater sin. Grace leads to obedience. You see, friends, we can try and deal with the breadth and depth of sin by encouraging more sin or by chalking it up to religious practice or heritage or by blaming God himself. But the reality is, is that in each of these, we're not looking at the real issue of our sin. Because the real reason for our sin, it, it isn't out there, it's in here. It's in us. You see, the questions of verses 1 through 8 are trying to find excuses for sin, and in excusing sin, we're not actually dealing with sin. What we need is not excuses. What we need is obedience. Now, if you've been listening carefully and you're kind of connecting some dots, when I say what we need is obedience, the first thing you should say is, well, time out, Penny. I know that I can't obey. Because you just said, right, my mind, my heart, my ethic, my desire, like everything has been affected by sin. And so, so if what we need is obedience, then we are in trouble. But we do need obedience. And yet Christ has been that obedient one. You see, that's the good news. I was talking to someone in between the services uh, after the first service who was in here. And, and just the reminder again that the good news is good news because of the bad news. Right? Like, in order us to see the good news, like, for, for us to fully comprehend the goodness of what Christ has done, we also have to see how, how much our sin cost for what Christ did, right? Like, like, for there to be good news, there has to be bad news. And the bad news is we can't obey, but the good news is, is that he does. That is the beauty of the gospel. That in all the ways in verses 10 through 18 that we have failed, Christ has succeeded, did you realize that? Like, like, 
No one is righteous, no, not one, but Jesus. He's the truly righteous one. We don't seek the Father's glory, but Christ always seeks his glory, right? He is the one who always does good, and he speaks words of truth and grace. He is the one whose eyes are always looking to the Father, and the one who by his own blood brought us peace. He brings peace where we bring strife and division and war and hatred. He brings peace. And how does he bring peace? Not by shedding others' blood, but by shedding his own. By going to the cross. By going to the cross and taking our sin upon himself. That is what Christ has done. Y'all, that is the one that we are to look to. He is the one that we fix our gaze upon. He deals with all of our sin. He takes the depth and the breadth of it, and he places it on himself, and in its place, he gives us grace and forgiveness. That is the good news that is far better than the bad news. And so, friends, as we gaze into the mirror that is the law, and we see all the ways that we have disobeyed, we must also look and see all the ways that he has obeyed. And as we look and we see all the ways that we have sinned, we, we need to look and fix our eyes on the one who has never sinned. And as we see all of our unrighteousness, we must look and see his righteousness. And so let us see our sin for what it is. Let us hate it and confess it and repent of it. But also, friends, let us fix our eyes on Christ his perfect obedience, his sacrifice on the cross that dealt with the depth and the breadth of mine and your sin. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that through the work of Jesus that you have brought forgiveness and grace, mercy and peace, that it was by his work and his work alone that the bad news of our sin is dealt with by the good news of your gospel. And so we we love you and fix our eyes upon you, our Savior and our King, who has given us the very life that we have, who forgives us of our sin, who turns us away from our unrighteousness, who leads us away from wickedness and brings us peace. Father, help us to fix our eyes on Christ, to turn away from our sin and to cling to your grace. And we pray this in the name of Christ and God's people said together, Amen.